Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Bleh. This is a chat with Eric German. He is an entertainment lawyer over at MSK LLP. Uh, you may have heard of him before on uh, various other podcasts, including the Gaza podcast and Doc Coyle's X-Man podcast. Uh, I'd highly recommend you go back and listen to those. Uh, he's generally an aficionado of the, the whole like metal landscape and, and the wheeling and dealing aspect of the industry these days. And that's kind of what this conversation was all about. So let's jump into it. One, two, fuck straight up. I think we're I think we're golden now. Can you hear me okay? Okay, great. I can hear you great. Oh my word. Excellent. Yeah, we, we were just Perfect. talking about biohazard and I was talking about the um uh outbreak fest and how it appears that especially in the UK, venues have gone slightly nonconformist and they've decided instead of security and a barrier, we'll just have a stage diving platform. And to make everyone sign a waiver, and that, <laughs> even though there was like loads of paperwork and there was a queue involved, I, you know, it was, it seemed to be very effective. So I think the, well, the, the it, climate it, is good for biohazard in this sense. If nothing else, it's fun, right? Mm, mm. And and fun is what we're all here to have. Um, Absolutely. You know, mo- the whole idea, concept of moshing and stage diving and all that has gone through so many different iterations in my uh, time of you know from kind of this scary thing to almost cute sometimes, right? But it can, obviously people can get hurt and you want to be careful, but, you know, do people, more people get hurt by trying to over control it or, you know, I'm sure there's a philosophy that it's going to happen. You might as well embrace it and make it, uh, you know, as safe and, and as uh, effective environment as possible. I don't know. I'm no expert in that stuff, but no, you know, it's, it's a legal question, isn't it? Because how much, how much uh, actual bodily harm can you consent to? Because that's the question. I mean, right? look, people people do uh, sign waivers when you bungee jump. You sign a waiver. You get you get uh, handed a uh, form. You probably don't read it. There's uh, twelve paragraphs of fine print. You're very excited <laughs> to you know strap in and and go if you're going to go skydiving or even you know sometimes when you buy a ticket to a, a sporting match it says. You know, if you get hit by a foul ball on the back of your ticket, you've you know when you park your car, you're you're probably telling the valet. It probably says on the back of the ticket, "We're not responsible for any lost or stolen items or something." I mean, did you agree to that? Did you not agree to that? I mean, it really comes down to was there a no, knowing waiver? Was there a knowing consent? And so, you know, maybe sometimes you've been at a show and you see a poster on the wall that says, uh, "You know, hey, recording in progress," and by remaining at the show. You agree that your name likeness could be on the DVD video that we're making or something like that. Mm-hmm. Are you actually consenting to that? Did you necessarily even read that sign? I don't know. But those are the arguments people make after that fact when they say, I never agreed to that. I didn't I didn't consent to that. Uh I don't know. Uh but let's say the more that you can do to mitigate those risks, the more you can do to give people adequate warnings, the more you can do to try to you know, make it as controlled and safe environment, the better. But, and ultimately, if you decide to go bungee jumping or if you decide to jump in a mosh pit, you probably, there probably is a level of knowing that you might get uh, a bruised elbow. So to speak. Yeah. It's a, the reasonable man clause. So what, what's biohazard like as an account? Are they, are they is it, is, since the reunion, is, has there been any particular difficulties or anything, that any challenges you've had to overcome as a lawyer? There's that. 
there's nothing more special than being a part of something. A band that's built a legacy like that and to have that level of, you know, they've done it and they've done it at the highest levels. They've done it with some of the best people. So to be, you get to participate and be part of that legacy and uh, have a, an opportunity to be, uh, you know, at this stage of the game, part of, you know, bringing that back to the people and everything. It's just, it's really an honor for me. Um, it's really exciting. And so what I'm here to do is to facilitate, you know, their vision and to help them, you know, come back together and, and do what they do best. And it's been really great. I mean, you know, all of those guys are, you know, legends, depending on, uh, uh, you know, where you're coming from. If you know heavy music and if you've been around for a while, you know what those guys mean and the influence that they've had. So, you know, it's, it's awesome to get to be a part of it. And literally though, it really didn't crystallize for me what it really meant. I had an idea what it might have meant, and I'm old enough that I was there back in the day. But um, to get to go to that, I went to the first of the two shows at Irving Plaza on the Friday night, mm-hmm. and just sitting in that balcony and watching, you know, their New York fan base, you know, interact with the reunited Biohazard and looking at them. I mean, they look incredible, and they're certainly. Um, at a level where they're, you know, performing the songs, they just sound the same, man. And it's, it's not like you have to imagine, or it's not like, you know, that Evan and Billy aren't singing the way they used to, or, you know, it's, it's all of it is right there. And so it's super exciting. Really cool. I'm, I'm and of course I, I'm working with great people, you know, I'm working with Andy Gould and Paul Gargano uh, and, you know, they're fan, They're fantastic. And that's the old team as well, isn't it? No, I think I think Scott Koenig was their manager. I don't know if you knew Scott. Scott was Fear Factory. I and did. I didn't I, know him. I did try. I did try and get to know him a little bit. Um, but I thought I thought Andy and um, Paul were still in the in the, the the in the mix back in the day. But maybe I'm wrong. I mean, they, they may have been at different levels, right? Uh, you know, people different people doing different things. But uh, the classic manager, as I understand, was Scott Koenig. Yeah, yeah. Rest in peace and whatnot. But that, that's another challenge because I've got. I've got a set amount of time with them to film for the Roadrunner documentary. And even though Biohazard only put out one album on Roadrunner, there's so much got to cover because Brooklyn in the late 80s, early 90s, very incestuous. So we have to talk about Pete Steele. We have to talk about Lenny and John's. We have to talk about all these things. And that's before we even get to the music itself, you know, otherwise I'm not doing my job as uh as the roadrunner historian, so I'll just have to see how I face into that challenge in that in that small window of time that I'll have. Yeah, well, good luck with it, and I hope you know. Don't forget to also enjoy the show; it's uh, quite a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I, I prepared. See if my you jump in, let's see if you jump in the pit too. Now we'll have a new definition of temple of bleh or whatever. <laughs> you say it, right? Oh, you got it, you got it. I'm actually in, uh, trying to devise a pit rig. Um, one way that I can have some GoPros on gimbals, which won't break. Um, I'm trying to figure it out. I know I will get there, but in the meantime, it's just going to be the normal camera on a gimbal. I'll just have to get as close as I'm comfortable getting. <laughs> we'll see, there was we'll see a video. I'm... There's a video circulating from one of the festivals recently, like from last week or the week before, um, where they're performing at some festival and there's like a sunset. It's uh, in the background. And it just looks absolutely stunningly incredible. And the fan, like everyone's jumping up and down. It was just a giant pit and stuff like. So I hope that for you. Hopefully that's in your future. Yeah, I hope so. I'll send you um some code orange footage which I got, which I got at Outbreak, which hopefully will demonstrate the 
the crowd for, uh, surfing footage, which I'm hoping to capture. But anyway, Eric German, thank you for for, for joining me for a, a hopefully very informal and chilled out conversation. Um, I'm, I'm listening. The way the way I kind of came around to to asking you to to come on was because I just kept coming across you by chance, and I was like. Right, Doc Coyle's podcast, you appear a number of times. There's a Gaza podcast. And then I speak to Ray Garcia fairly regularly when you get a few mentions there as well. Um, so I thought, ah, I need to move away from Roadrunner as a p- point of academia and more into like what's happening in sort of the more modern world in the industry. And I know your profession is a lawyer, but I think you've stated a number of times that there's a wheeling and dealing element to your role. <laughs> And as a result of that, I'm foreseeing that your perception is, well, your kind of task is to understand the landscape in a sort of broader businessy sense, as well as getting to the nitty gritty with the deals. Am I right in understanding this? Yeah, I, I believe that, look, everyone has their own style, right? And I'm talking to a guy from the UK, so you're not going to understand my uh, analogy, <laughs> but I love American football. But in American football, some coaches have a philosophy that they want to run the ball and some coaches have a philosophy they more want to pass. And so there are a lot of different ways to be a great lawyer for rock and roll bands and to work in the music industry. And I have a lot of colleagues and and competitors that are fantastic at what they do. I have my own style. My style is based on this phrase, context is king. And to me, it's not about necessarily just negotiating an agreement on a piece of paper. But if you understand the landscape, if you know the players involved, if you know where your client sits in that landscape, what the challenges are, what's important to them, what what kind of leverage they have, frankly, and uh, uh, what they're trying to accomplish. And then you also understand all that about your partner as well and whoever you're doing the deal with. You know, uh, you can better understand, you know, how to win for everybody and how to make a deal that makes sense all parties concerned and obviously i want to maximize value for my clients but in doing so i want to do so in a way that keeps an eye on a long-term uh you know big picture plan not uh how much can i squeeze this person for in the short term unless that's really the goal of what that's Mm -hmm. all about but reality is most of the time i like to understand the situation enough that i can help you know, direct them towards the partner that I think makes sense or, you know, facilitate their vision uh, by connecting some dots and, uh, you know, adding some input. That can also include adding input, you know, in terms of creatively what direction things should go or what's the best path to present their art to the world, how, you know, what the story is we're telling, helping to refine that and hone in on it and make deals that reflect that and that support that vision and that story. So, yeah, there's a lot to it. And obviously, I'm a big music fan. I'm a big rock fan. And so I live this shit anyway. So I might as well uh, really live it. And when you live it and you're in it, you're surrounded by it. It just comes naturally to say, oh, yeah, this act, you know, I see Sepultura on your shirt. I have a vision of what... If you know if Sepultura, yeah, theoretically was going to reunite, you know, with the Cavaleras and 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 everybody, and they were going to do that, like, you know, I would have my own vision of where I think that fits and what that means and how that works and who would be good partners and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. See, now I just want to say, give me that vision because that sounds interesting, but obviously that's the, the, the those are secrets that have to remain in your head. Oh yeah, but I, I don't work with Sepultura. I uh, that's, that's why I chose well. it. 
I simply <laughs> chose that because that's the shirt you're wearing. And I love the old school logo, right? I love that. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I got this one. Um, I interviewed Andreas for the Roadrunner doc in KK's steel mill. So it was like a big old legacy day because you're in KK Downing's venue speaking to Sepultura. Yeah, I will say I saw Sepultura recently. Um, uh, Some friends of mine in a band called Death Angel invited us out, or actually a friend of mine that's really friends with the people in Death Angel. And they were supporting, it was Creator, Sepultura, and Death Angel playing at the Wiltern Theater here in Los Angeles, which is pretty decent-sized venue. It's not a club, right? It's a theater. And it was sold out, and it was very sold out. I was quite impressed with where those bands are at and the fan base that was that showed up for that and, uh, you know, the level of production. And when we got even, I was quite surprised because I'm of a certain age. I remember buying those early creator albums back in the 80s and rocking, you know, Pleasure to Kill and, and uh, you know, Terrible Certainty and, and albums like that. And that was a, felt like an underground band even back in their classic days. But now they're headlining the wheel turn. There was like giant inflatables on stage, like the level of like Iron Maiden's Eddie. And, you know, here in Los Angeles, Crater is a wheel turn headliner. That's, that's pretty rad. So it, it, it just shows you that great music and timeless music is classic and that, you know, sticking with it and continuing to uh, perpetuate the brands like Sepultura or Biohazard or you know, creator. By the way, I saw Billy from Biohazard at that show. <laughs> Speaking of Biohazard, <laughs> but the uh, um, you know, it just shows you the value that these things can have over time when you're consistent. You stick with it. I think over time is the operative phrase there because it's like it feels like creator. The last two or three years has had this weird sort of almost mainstream metal elevation. And with Sepultura themselves, obviously for the last 20 odd years, there's been an idea of camps between the Cavaliers and Sepultura. And now it seems like that's, I know between them is not smooth over, but from the fans, no one's picking anymore. Everyone seems to like everything that's coming out from both camps. So I don't know what's happened in the last few years. I don't know if it's the way the information is disseminated. I don't know if this is streaming as a platform, sort of the accessibility kind of, smooths out any of those angles maybe but it just i think look, right. it's all Something it's all like entertainment that. right and i do think that um that uh i think you're right streaming smooths out the accessibility of streaming makes all kids and all fans able to experience everything i remember you know a, a day where if there were b-sides or a live album or something it was like an investment it was a 15 20 investment i had to decide whether I wanted to to take a chance on that, or if there was a record with one song, you know, and nowadays there's absolutely no reason not to at least sample and taste everything that comes out. Right. And so mm. ultimately it just comes down to, this is supposed to be fun. And uh, it's a lot of fun to have every song ever created right in the palm of my hand, literally in the palm of my hand right now. And yeah, yeah. It, it's the level of investment it takes for me to check out the new Sepultura record is, a you know, 10 seconds uh and uh you know you have to really be disinterested to to want to do that and i can't imagine someone who is interested in sepultura but not the cavaleras or vice versa right yeah 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 i mean once upon a time you might have only had ten dollars to spend on one or the other but uh yeah it moving into where things are then eric so post-pandemic do you see any particular 
shift in the way that you've been advising your clients or seeing the landscape and the strategies post-pandemic? I mean, as a British person, I see some very unique challenges. But from your side of the pond, has there been a change in mindset in the way that people might want to grow their brands or? 100%. I mean, you're coming at this from the perspective of we're talking about heavy metal and we're talking about Roadrunner era heavy metal. And so by necessity, we're talking about bands of a certain age, right? But I also work with all sorts of artists all across the spectrum, many different genres, many different types of music, and a lot of developing startup artists and stuff. And I think 2020, let's call it, you know, whether it's the pandemic, but all of it that came with it is um, really forced people to understand. And I think there was a convergence of many different things. happening. I think interest rates being low and the, the rise of catalog sales taught people the value of copyrights and taught people the value of owning masters and, and mo- being able to make money off streaming. I think that, you know, increasing subscriptions to streaming services have, you know, uh, allowed people to understand that there's more money to be made that way. I think that the ease, the accessibility, the fact that anyone, you know, in the old days, in the early Roadrunner days, it was hard to like get a CD made, even to get the recordings, but to get a CD and to get it distributed. And there were kind of gatekeepers in various century. Nowadays, just about anybody with just a few clicks of a mouth and you know, uh, paying a small fee can get their stuff on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, Deezer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram. So you and I could make a band right now mm-hmm. and we could scream into a microphone and make some funny lyrics, make a name. And by, you know, Monday, we could have that in every same store that every Biohazard Stumble Tour album's in, right? And uh, now the question is, does anybody give a shit about it? But there are lots of ways. There are new tools, whether it's TikTok or other social media platforms or other ways uh, to get your stuff out without ever leaving your house, without getting in a van, without doing anything. I think people, whether they learn to do Twitch streaming or Patreon or live shows for when that was a thing or uh, you know, just the power of breaking an artist on TikTok or short form video content on YouTube or Instagram or whatever, we all had to you know, in part by necessity, in part out of boredom and in part by circumstance where it was just time for that anyway. We all learned how to reboot these businesses uh, in that way. And I think going into that, and I think a lot of metal people are still in this space. Um, Metal sells physical, right? Metal sells CDs and sells vinyl and stuff. So, you know, when there was no ability to get stuff out to stores and a lot of metal sells based on the primary promotional tool is touring when there wasn't that stuff these people had to figure out the back end of the social media internet streaming type side of the business and again i think a lot of people realized a it's easy to do that you can release a lot of content you can release it quicker you don't have to be as precious about it you don't have to wait years between albums and wait for the vinyl to be ready you don't have to uh attach everything to a tour um, so I think the business changed a lot that way in that a lot of people I know, whether it's Matt Hafey learning to be a star on Twitch, whether it's uh, um, uh, breaking new artists that were discovered from TikTok or old classics through, uh, you know, uh, through uh, a viral video or something like that. 
I think we we learned a lot about you know 2020. The business is entirely different in 2023 than it was in 2020. And yes. then the the second part, yeah, go ahead. I'm gonna do the second part because I'm gonna I'm gonna do a, a round of a playback and a question. Yeah, the second part is where we uh, uh, you talked about the physical, like the online, the I mean the offline, the touring, right? That part of it, that business. Look, merch sales went up during the pandemic. I think people had extra money and they were bored. And but but shipping costs and and different things were were high. It was difficult to figure out how to monitor. Uh, you know, to um, supply chain issues and things like that came up. But now with touring on the other side, where things are today, the idea I think people long for, I see young kids who were into pop and EDM and it coming around a rock in a new way. They love real people with real instruments and sweaty clubs and feedback and old school martial amps and stuff in a way that I think was lost for a little while there. Mm-hmm. And I think coming into today – I mean, I've spent a summer, I've been out and about and on the road and at shows and, you know, breathing the air. And I think I said to somebody, I was in the snake pit at Metallica at MetLife Stadium on Sunday. And about halfway through the show, I turned to one of my friends. I said, you know what this smells like? And they said, what? I said, it smells like freedom, motherfucker. Like this, (laughs) it just being out under the stars on a summer night, surrounded by your friends with Metallica fucking jamming, you know, in giant, you know, life size right in front of you. That to me, that is freedom that, and, and it felt, and it feels good. So I think, you know, everybody wants to be out on the road. Everybody wants to be participating in, in a physical space with their fans. Um, and it's really expensive, right? Tour bus costs more, uh, crew costs, costs more mm-hmm. gasoline prices are higher, uh, everything is more expensive and particularly coming from the United States to Europe or, or, you know, overseas touring and stuff like that, it's really become hard. And there's a lot of different things cutting into the bottom line that bands are making from touring and stuff like that. So on the flip side, where the, where the, the, the streaming side and the internet social media side is actually much better playing field than it was before. And there's more revenue and better ways to achieve it and lower barriers to entry. The inverse is somewhat true when it comes to touring where, uh, you know, it's more expensive to tour. And many people are saying, why do I have to tour? And I, it's hard to make a profit. And so, you know, the business is changing, but before the pandemic, I think most people would say hard rock and metal bands made their money off t-shirts and touring. After the pandemic, you know, we're all struggling with the extent to which that is changing and how and why and et cetera, et cetera. I started taking notes of what you were saying because I had things to say on all of them, but I didn't want to stop you. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) All right. Number one, you mentioned um, so the value in the the catalog and the copyrights and people are understanding that a lot more. That's something that's fascinated me because that's cyclical because that's something that happened with the disco boom as well. Uh, when the bubble burst in the late seventies, one of the things that was observed was the future of the industry is in like the master recordings and the performing rights, because like poly, uh, polygram aren't going to be buying many more vinyl pressing plants. There's no fucking point because obviously no one was buying it. And that's exactly how Roadrunner, and again, bringing it all back to Roadrunner, because that's all I know, apparently the, that's how they structured their deals. That's why everything was in per, uh, perpetuity. So they'd always be, an IP associated with the band and with the brand. So it's interesting how that's kind of been revisited in a more modern sense. With Hafey is a 
um, constant. I got constantly revisit him because he seems to have transacted, as you say, he's sort of embedded the streaming in the sort of the modern way of being in a band, and he's embedded it into his life in a manner which he just has like a passive income stream, which can supplement any losses from everywhere else, which makes loads of sense. But here's the question: When Matt plays a Trivium song on his stream. Are Roadrunner going to take a cut of that? Because it is performing a Roadrunner asset. However, did his original record contract stay live streaming as a perform, or does that fall under performance for the purposes of in the UK filling out a PR? Oftentimes, let me help you with this. Yeah, oftentimes those platforms, you know, I think they have deals. The the platforms, whether it's Twitch or, or or YouTube or Instagram or Facebook or whatever. They cut deals with the labels and with the publishers to mm-hmm. uh, talk about, you know, how between archived content and live streaming content. And, mm-hmm. you know, in the United States, we're, we're paying, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, there are, there are different societies that will collect uh, performance rights for publishers there's uh, sound exchange collecting digital performance rights in the United States for master rights owners, and that's all for you know uh, live streaming. When you're when you're syncing, you're creating something that's downloaded, and you don't have deals through a platform. Uh, you know, yeah, it can be challenging, and people can get copyright strikes, and they can get uh, um, uh, things taken down. It's similar to like the YouTube situation. Does that make sense? And so, no, 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 completely. A lot of artists are asking. I don't know Matt's particular situation. That's not someone that I work with as a client. But the, uh, uh, I just am a fan of what he does, and I find him an interesting example. But the, uh, um, and obviously his his managers at Five B are incredibly talented people who are, I'm sure, are all over this. But the uh, when it comes to looking at. Um, uh, you know, wh- wh- when when I think that you can whitelist our, our, a lot of these, like basically I have artists coming to me and saying, I want to do this creative thing. I have this YouTube channel or I have this interesting way I'd like to distribute this content. I want to make sure I don't get a copyright strike. I want to make sure this thing isn't taken down. I need my label and my publisher to agree that using this music in this way uh, through this particular platform is pre-cleared and, uh, you know, either whitelist the channel so that they don't strike it with, if, if something comes up or, uh, or specifically a particular use to authorize it, you know, so it becomes more challenging. It's more work for lawyers. It's more work for publishers and labels in terms of what they're clearing and how, and all of that. We're touching on something which no one really talks about, um, which is this part of the industry is still an emerging function. And the reason it takes like lawyer time and publisher time is because they haven't streamlined it yet because it's so fucking new. Right. Well, yeah. And if you want to even elaborate on that, I saw an article in billboard recently that uh, a gentleman named Lucas Keller shared on his social media. And by the way, anybody who wants a great industry follow on social media, it's Lucas Keller. He's very funny, but the, uh, he uh, talked about, um, he talked about, uh, I think he was quoted in an article about why lawyers are taking so long to get deals done right now. And the backlog that's happening with every lawyer and every lawyer's desk. And, you know, there, I think there was a quote, something like, Hey, my lawyer took two months to get something done. And someone else saying, 
two months. That sounds great. I mean, tell me his number because, you know, in the old days, a band would release a record and they'd have a producer and there'd be a producer agreement and they probably wrote the music themselves and, you know, and they released a record every couple of years. Nowadays, you've got different producers and writers on just about every song. They're releasing a single at a time and multiple singles, you know, uh, sometimes every month. Mm. Um, you've got uh, featured artists and side artist agreements and different splits and collaborations. And you're talking about so – and then you've got all the, these, you know, ancillary revenue things. And uh, you're talking about so many pieces of paper and so yeah. many different collaborators and producers and writers and so many different songs and so much content coming out to get to that same dollar figure that you once had before. It's not just, you know, one or two deals every year or year and a half. It's, you know, 10 or 15 deals every year, year and a half. Right. And is that, uh, to get to the same result. Is that where DistroKid comes in though? Because they're the one guys with the technology to, because when you, when you do a cover song, normally mm -hmm. you need, the publisher permission, the artist permission, you need to send them their cut of whatever that makes. But District could have automated that. Yeah. So it's a similar well, look, kind of principle. Yeah, like a lot of those types of distributors, I don't know specifics of DistroKid yeah. versus AWOL versus TuneCore versus CD Baby or The Orchard mm. or 1RPM or Blood Blast, which is a metal uh, white label distribution uh, arm of Believe Digital. But all of these different companies... Uh, you know, provide different services. Many of them will account directly to the splits of the artists and you can set it up right through their app or whatever that, you know, this percentage goes to this person, this percentage goes to that person. Yeah, but you also want to have the paperwork and make the agreement where everyone's signing off on how we get to those splits and what we've created and who owns yeah, it, who controls yeah. it and all of that stuff. In addition, when you're talking about cover songs, cover songs, uh, it's one thing, yes, there, in, in, there are, there are, parts of the copyright act that allow people to do cover songs you anyone can cover a song that's already come out so i could do a van halen cover or a sepultura cover or an iron maiden cover or a Trivian cover and i could do my own version and put it up on spotify and apple and i just have to pay a preset amount of money to the songwriters mm -hmm. uh you know obviously not the master owners because it would be my i would have my own master but the uh the publishing would all be uh taken care of they, these the songwriters can't say no they have to allow it what they can say no to is the video and that's called a really? sync license and so if you want to make a sync a, a music video and you want to keep the monetization or you want to keep a chunk of the monetization you have to go out and make a bespoke deal with those uh publishers and they can say no and they can take all day to answer you or never answer you at all and so it becomes pretty challenging especially as you know we were taught another change, I think, from 2020 to 2023 is how much we're now in an audiovisual world as opposed to an audio world mm -hmm. where, you know, it's videos used to be promotional tools to promote the record. And of course, now they're the product themselves. I mean, many, many people get their music through YouTube, right? Yep. And uh, uh, in certain parts of the world, if you look at the comments on certain videos, you see a lot of people coming from different parts of the world and things like that because – you know, YouTube's free, or it can be free. There's YouTube Premium and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but there, there's a lot of people that are are accessing music that way. More importantly, you see very big 
music videos, whether it's Ronnie Radke and Falling in Reverse or my clients in Ice Nine Kills or doing these elaborate videos that are, you know, major motion pictures, basically, you know, with car chases and explosions and uh, stunt people. And, you know, it's uh, it's become really important. It's uh, it, where, you know, it's no longer a pro- promotional tool. It's the product itself. And so people are like, you're, you're taking video right now, right? Because you got to be on YouTube too. You can't just do this audio only. Right. And, uh, you know, it'd be great if we could be in a studio together and have something more produced or all that stuff. But also it works on the other end too. It's not just car chases and explosions and giant falling in reverse or ice nine kills videos. It's uh short form content are breaking artists left and right on TikTok and, uh, Instagram and YouTube shorts and, Instagram reels and things like that. And so, you know, the kids today, I can't imagine a brand new artist that breaks without visual. You have to be doing something visually interesting. You have to uh, be doing something that is going to play on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. And so, uh, you know, just doing that cover song and thinking, I'm going to just pay the mechanical royalty that's set by the copyright that allows me to put out this song. You need you need the ability to to put it to video, I'm and always... uh, that requires a license too. So that's another you know just even in the cover space, just give you an example of mm-hmm. slightly more complicated than you probably want it to be, and that's oh, what no, I, I, love it. I, I, yeah. I love going down these rabbit holes. These are my favorite things in the entire world. But the thing that fascinates me is we need this short form content. We need that level of engagement, and there's a lot to those particular outlets, which is completely out of your control, complete because it's the quote unquote algorithm. So I'm always fascinated with, okay, how much time is a band or a person willing to invest in those things? Because that's the big killer, isn't it? Because it might amount to nothing. And you might end up, sorry, go on. Yeah. A lot of artists are are very um, against trying to put uh, the time into that. They don't want to do it. They're musicians. They want to create music. They don't want to, dance around for TikTok. I did a whole podcast a, a year, a year and a half ago. It's a little stale now with uh, Doc Coyle yeah. and uh, Ryan Downey and Mike Mowry. Uh, it we called it the social media symposium. And it was That's like, it. do artists need to do this stuff? And why should they? And what if they don't want to? And I said, hey, I remember bands in the 70s probably didn't want to make music videos when MTV came along. You know, and Charlie Chaplin probably didn't want to do sound-oriented films. And, uh, you know, there were black and white stars that didn't want to move into color. And this is just where we're at now. And so you can say, I'm a retro guy, and I don't do that, and I'm only audio only, or I don't do social media. And there is some mystery to it. And, Mm -hmm. yes, I agree, social media is kind of, you know, bad in a lot of ways, and it's destructive to mental health, and it's taxing, and we're asking more of artists and all of those things. But, you know, it's just what the gig is now. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't mean that you're invalid if you don't do social media. But, like, you know, most people are engaging with artists through their phones and through audiovisual platforms now. So, like, you know, and then people said, you know, well, wait, we don't need to see King Diamond running around wiggling his ass to the latest TikTok trend. We need Mysterious. And I said on that podcast – I would love to be the guy in charge of King Diamond's, uh, uh, the Merciful Fate uh, TikTok. How much fun could you have creating Mysterious Vibe and telling the story that you want to tell with King Diamond? It's through a different medium. So, 
you know, the artists, when they say they don't want to do it or they don't want to invest in it, it's like, you know, do they want to do album covers? Do they want to do music videos? Do they want to make t-shirt designs? It's all, you know, taking, extending that music and taking it off the page into something, you know, that's visual as well. And it, and it can be a lot of fun. It can be a part of the creativity and a part of the story. I literally think that today's artist is like a reality TV show that plays on all platforms. It might be on, on, uh, on Twitch. It might be on Instagram or YouTube or Spotify. It's going to be on audio. It's going to be music video. It's going to be live stage. It's going to be in merch. It's going to be in the captions you post on Instagram. You're telling a story through all these different platforms. So my favorite clients and artists are doing books and comic books and video games and film. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's a brand that, and, and a story that extends and, Yes, uh, you know, is Judas Priest a story? It is. There is a Judas Priest comic book, and there is killer merch, and there could be, uh, you know, more to it. Obviously, that's a legacy act, but mm-hmm. uh, you could take anything and make it work on all these platforms. And I think you should if if that's what you're trying to do, if you're trying to reach those people. And some the people who are good at it embed it into their working day. It's just part of how they roll. Hey, if he's got the two slots on Twitch... He literally writes songs in it, and it comes back to something else I wanted to, to discuss, which is something you mentioned, the smell of freedom, right? So you've obviously recognized that you can't really replace the authenticity of a live show. And some people just stream the live shows because they also accepted that. There was this time at the, sort of in the dawn of um, Web 2.0 where festivals would completely live stream their entire set, their entire running order on YouTube or whatever, usually like a dedicated platform within a website. Then they dropped it off because I think they sort of realized, oh, people are getting a free show here. We don't really want that. Now they're coming back because they've realized that people aren't using that to replace the gig, right? And I think there's something in here, especially with the something about metal, right? And you mentioned retail as well. People buy vinyl. And this is a metal thing. I think people are learning that authenticity, which is a big metal thing, authenticity is the name of the game. And you can, in a way, monetize it and commercialize it. And you do that through the vinyl, you do that through the T-shirts, and you do that through the gigs. Well, I think authenticity is something that can't be bottled and sold. It, it, I mean, by its very nature, authentic is organic, and it is, uh, you know, yeah, to the extent that it, it – it, let, let's talk about the live gig thing. The festivals yeah. are um, – look – I'll take it even a step back further. There's no question in my mind that there's something dramatically different between the experience of being in a room with a live band and other fans experiencing music together and singing. Uh, there, There's no question that that can't be replaced or is not a one-to-one substitute for a live stream sitting in my kitchen watching a band play on my laptop. It's just not the same fucking thing. There's a curiosity factor. I'll always go on the metal news sites to see the set list of what somebody played or uh, to see a little bit of video of what it looked like when this band played at this festival or reunited with this member or whatever for an informational value, you know, but the experiential value of, of being look part of the reason I love heavy metal is the community. I want to connect with other people. I lived through a time where I was away at college when uh, kind of heavy metal was not cool for a while. And, you know, and it was in the pre-internet era. And I can tell you that it's not, uh, it's, it's kind of like that old, 
Twilight Zone episode for anyone really old, where the guy, all he wants to do is be left alone and read, and then the apocalypse happens and his glasses break, and now he can't read any books. Mm. I'm like, you know, if I want to sit and listen to all my records by myself, you know, I don't know that that I think it's missing something. And when a new Slayer album comes out, but you're isolated off of college and none of your friends like Slayer and nobody's listening to Slayer at any parties, it's not on the radio and it's not on TV and there's no social media. You can listen to it, but it's less fun than engaging and discussing and rocking out and smashing uh, into your friends and just really, you know, there's a visceral component to all this. And I think so Mm. going to a live Metallica show is much more interesting than talking about a live Metallica show. It just feels different, right? And I want to see like-minded people and I want to slap my friend's uh, hand high five and I want to hug my buddy and I want to pick somebody up that fell down in the mosh pit. And I want to, uh, you know, see the look on people's faces and feel the, the bass in, in my chest, you know, and, and like, that's, you can't do that through a computer for sure. I think Meta- just touching on Metallica very quickly. I think they're killing it at the minute on the basis that the, the, the path that hasn't been trodden yet is a triple A AAA act of their age doing new shit. I don't mean musically. I mean the things like the no repeat weekends and the the, the sort of the visualization of the new album cycle. It's the big yellow and big black, the nice big bold swings, right? For a yeah. band that's approaching their sixties. And what I, we I, want, I like that you talked about the color too. That's great. I mean, like there's a color scheme. Like when I think mm. of Master of Puppets, I think of that purple, you know, reddish purple hue. hue. Yeah, when yeah. I think of Ride the Lightning, I think blue. When I think Kill 'Em All, I think red. When I think uh, uh, Justice for All, I think white. When I think Black Album, I think black. Right? Uh, Load is orange, I guess, sort of, or Saint Anger or whatever. But like this one's yellow, right? And mm. it's pretty cool, right? And uh, yes, that's what I mean about the reality show that plays on all platforms. There's a continuity through the merch through the stage design, through the record, through everything feels connected because it's so well executed. But the the number one thing that is so freaking amazing, and yes, the No Repeat Weekend is killer because you know we're all super fans. We've seen our favorite band a thousand times at this point. But the idea that anything could happen, you don't know what the set list is. And by the way, you could go twice and, and there's so many songs, you know, you're going to see 30 some songs that weekend. And none of them are going to repeat. That's killer. And the idea with the different opening acts and everything is amazing. I'll tell you, um, I also was at uh, MetLife and they had Overkill playing in a parking lot on the day I was there. Right. And Overkill is an old favorite from when I was a kid. And no joke, I'm I come outside in it, you know, it's hot sun, asphalt. And there's like basically like a truck pulled up and there's overkill, right? And we're watching that. I turn around, I see Mark Shapiro. Mark Shapiro told me that he was doing your podcast. Two nights ago. Either that, I think that (laughs) night or either the night before or whenever I saw him. I saw him Sunday in New York, right? And in this parking lot. And he told me he was doing a podcast. He had to, I, I forget why he said it. And I was like, oh, what podcast? And he said this one. And I, I'm not even sure if I told him that I was doing it too, but I thought that was awesome. And then, <laughs> but like, see, I'm running into people in the in, at the show watching Overkill in the parking lot. I mean, how classic heavy metal is at the tailgate party, right? Yeah. So man. I think that making it an event and a, and a whole weekend of shit is really cool. But the real innovative thing 
is that stage. And if you haven't mm-hmm. seen that show yet, I don't know. It was sort of that at download, but not really because download was download and they had mm-hmm. elements of it. But the, the way the stage is, I, I went to Amsterdam as well. And uh, now I saw it at MetLife, but it's incredible, man. The, Metallica is literally playing surrounded by their fans. There's people on all sides. And mm-hmm. if you're in the snake pit, you can walk up to each member and you can check out James and he's right in your face. And then you can go over and see what Kirk's up to and then turn around and go check out Lars for a while. And they move around and it's just, it's spectacular. And uh, it's, it's so much of everything we've just been talking about all mm-hmm. like all of our learning and technology on how to like, really connect with your fans this is the most i've ever seen a band do that it's really cool it really matters i don't i think people like to see it right there's a lot to see because it's metallica but i think it really matters because if we can get lads in their 60s 50s and 60s playing heavy metal and still breaking the mold and still making a market effect that means that there's a future for the genre and that means that when i'm older i can still go to you know metlife and see another another band in the parking lot 30 years from now right that's the <laughs> idea it's about longevity and about the cyclical nature of it and that's why i think it's super super important and i'm not making uh this isn't a disparaging comment but the flip side to that is iron maiden i think who they've got a routine they're not quite in the same ballpark as metallica in terms of metallica are hungry and they're always going to be hungry right there's a hunger to it and there's an authenticity to that hunger Iron Maiden have conquered the world seven times over. They're kind of doing what they want to be doing, and they're going to be traveling. And a lot of what they want to be doing is traveling. It's a different mindset, I think. I don't know if it, I don't know if it's a fair comparison. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, Iron Maiden. Iron Maiden is absolutely look. They are. Uh, they have never done anything that anybody you know that Iron Maiden is as iconoclastic as they get in terms of being able to not play radio hits, never have any form of mainstream success, yeah. yet constantly be playing giant shows and selling more merch than anybody. And, uh, you know, doing, look at their new album, Senjutsu is like chock full. I, is there a song under 10 minutes? Yeah. Thing, right? it's, a, it's a long, hard listen. It takes, you got to really care. But, it's, you know, I'm finding, like, look, we were talking about experiential and I was thinking about the movies, right? And during the pandemic, I thought that the the experience of going to a theater and seeing a film might have been dead, and that everything was you were going to watch streaming on your, you know, uh, on your streaming service through your television, and and fuck going to the movie theater, right? You know, yes, I like the popcorn and the recliner mm-hmm. chairs, which is part of the in the air conditioning and all of that. But you know, but Oppenheimer and Barbie, at least here in America, a couple of weeks ago really worse they felt like events like you felt like you had to go i went to see oppenheimer the first weekend because i'm that guy right and uh christopher nolan fan and all that but it felt like an event i felt like i had to go the same way i felt like i had to go see the metallica show when it came through town where i felt like i was missing out on the conversation in the community Mm -hmm. and and right and i also saw walking through the parking lot a whole bunch of people dressed in pink and i knew what movie they were going to and it was just like as if they were going to the Taylor Swift concert or if they're going to see Barbie or whatever. And it was all sort of one thing, which I thought, uh, you know, and right there, you're like, the movies are back, man. There is an experience of going to the movie theater and seeing a film with a bunch of people on a giant screen. And this is what we're all learning about ourselves that 
you know, not everything translates over a phone, right? And uh, I think that's important. Is the um, before I move on to an actual point about this? I remember you saying you're a Star Wars guy, so I need to take your take on the Last Jedi because I do that with everyone who's a Star Wars person. Oh, I mean, I love. Look, I'm accused, and you don't know me that well, but the people that do accuse sometimes they'll discount my opinion because the things that I love, I love, and I work hard to love them. And uh, <laughs> you know, so I'm sort of a homer. I'm wearing a Las Vegas Raiders T-shirt on. I'm a super fan of this team. They haven't won anything. I'm 52, and the last time they won, I think I was 12. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, but uh, and and every year I've got a thousand reasons why it's right around the corner. It's about to happen, mm-hmm. right? When I go to see the new Star Wars film, I'm going to you know have it check all the boxes of all the things that uh, you know, and and I uh, you know I enjoy it. I'm looking to enjoy it. It's an emotional experience for me mm-hmm. because that brand has connected with me so deeply that uh, I'm gonna love it. I'm not going to dissect that the same way as I'm going to, uh, you know, it's not Citizen Kane and it's not uh, even Oppenheimer, but uh, (laughs) it was, I had a blast, you know what I mean? And I love the spaceships and the creatures and the droids and the, and the callbacks and the Easter eggs and the, uh, you know, you know. I rejoined Twitter after a long, like five year absence specifically to argue in favor of The Last Jedi because I just fucking love that film so much. It just didn't feel fair what was happening to it. But I quickly realized, similar to yourself, there was kind of no point. You couldn't... It's impossible to dissect sometimes because sometimes you just sort of mobilized uh, to fit the jigsaw, the gap in the jigsaw, right? And there's no real explanation for it. Well, yeah, listen, I'll also say this. Things that I tend to love a lot, and they are... Star Wars is one of them, and... And and uh, the Raiders are one of them, and Metallica is one of them, and we've touched on a few. But I love people that love things, mm-hmm. and I, I love going to San Diego Comic Con and looking at the booths and seeing the people dressed up. And I realized that you could make fun of this person and say this is a nerd, or how could you like this thing? But they, when people love something and they're truly passionate about it, that's really interesting to me. Whether yeah. it's the Grateful Dead or Metallica, or whether it's Star Wars or some kind of weird Japanese anime or whatever. If people love it, then I am interested in why they love it. And I also like seeing people happy. And I like seeing people love things. And I think it brings out the best in us when we're really, really excited. But also, those fan bases also, Metallica is one of them. And Star Wars is one of them. can be incredibly toxic. And they can rip each other to shreds because everyone, like, no one hates Star Wars as much as a Star Wars fan. And no one hates Metallica as much as Metallica fans. And yeah. no one hates the Raiders as much as Raider fans. You know what I mean? And they can really come at this thing hard because they think it's supposed to be X, Y, or Z. And, you know, they're really angry when it's not, you know? Yeah, so. yeah. So bring it back into the sort of the MO for us being here. We're talking about events, cultural events, and I use the word authenticity a lot. And we, I think we know what we mean by that. It's about being around the sweat and going through the with the blood, sweat, and tears of, of a of a particular thing that we love. Now, in the current climate of merch and venues, venues taking a merch cut, things going up in price substantially. In terms of Brexit, is now nearly a non-viable venture to tour the UK, and for reasons which I need to get into the numbers, I'm just kind of interested in that kind of stuff. 
I'm this is my sort of this is my hypothesis. In the sphere or the circle or the pie chart or the Venn diagram or whatever you want to call it of band revenue, is there an argument that merch fees are aligned correctly because we need the venues to survive? Therefore, do we need to look back to the streaming part and reignite the streaming debate and say, maybe we do need a bit better, a bit more of a royalty cut to make this entire business possible or better yet? What, is there a scenario where we can create artificial scarcity for an artist and we say, hey, guys, we're going to put the singles out on Spotify and Apple, but the album's going to be on Bandcamp for $5 or whatever? I mean, everything, everything you're saying, you're saying, is there an argument? Of course there's an argument, right? Yeah. But let me start by saying that I am 100% uh, 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 an artist guy, right, for the most yeah. part. Mm -hmm. and But going back, and I'm here to advocate – for the most income for my artists and to support them and they work hard and the back, you know, every, I wish as much money as possible can go in their pockets. And there are so many people with their hands out, including myself and everyone else in up and down the, the, the chain of all aspects of their business. You know, it sometimes can be incredibly disheartening to see uh, what they come home with. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, especially if there are several guys in a band and they're splitting you know, five ways or four ways or something that could be really tough. And I think that they all should get paid more from all aspects of their career. And, you know, from a selfish perspective, when I'm looking at my particular clients and I'm seeing the merch settlement sheets and I'm seeing a venue fee come out, you know, it's like, yeah, it's frustrating. Right. Mm -hmm. But the, at the same time, um, you know, I believe, <sighs> I won't say I'm a capitalist because I don't even know what that really means anymore or anything like that. But I would say that I do understand that, you know, this is all economics, right? And not only do you need the venues to exist in order to have places for artists to play, you need the streaming services to exist in order to have places to aggregate Exposure. people to listen. And, you know, you can make money. Here's the thing. You can make money in all of these areas when you have the right, product at the right price but it is also becoming more and more difficult to make money in these areas and and the amount of money that you make for the amount of effort that you have you know it would be awesome if you didn't have to pay all these different people but yeah when it comes to a venue if a ve if a venue isn't making money off merch fees maybe they're taking it higher prices for drinks or maybe ticket prices are higher and it has to be shared or maybe there's you know the venue rental hall fees or more i don't you know everything is kind of probably finds a way to, you know, it's all sort of this, take this, give that. Do my, I, my artists complain about merch cuts. I mean, I read the same things you read with some of the superstars that I grew up with, you know, mm. saying that it's become too expensive to tour Europe. I'm on phone calls that you're not on where mm. I'm, you know, really struggling with artists with, you know, making ends meet on tour and trying to figure out how I had a con conversation earlier today where I was explaining to somebody, why they shouldn't cancel their tour because, uh, uh, you know, they should make it work. And here's all the reasons why. And, you know, I felt like that was difficult for them because, the, you know, they're trying to pare down their, their, the way, the style that they're touring uh, in order to facilitate budgets that just don't pencil out for them. And if they want to mm -hmm. eke out making money or just not lose that much money, they have to live in a way that maybe isn't as comfortable for them. You know, mm -hmm. while I'm sitting here flying first class and staying at the Four Seasons, these guys are out there. On it's so easy for me to get on the phone 
and tell an artist, well, you should do X and you should do Y and you should do Z and then go back to my nice house and my dog and my wife and my kid and, and, and have a nice dinner while they're out there grinding it out, doing the work that is really hard. That's, uh, you know, it's not even really necessarily fair. So I like to actually go to some of these gigs and press the flesh and see how they live and talk to them and spend time with them and see the fans and all that stuff to try to get a feel for it. And yes, I mean, merch fees stuck. I don't think that's the answer to solve everyone's problems. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we definitely need the venues to survive. No question about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think in that statement, I think my job in this is, because I'm a big fan of the Kabuki drop. That's what I'm in the pursuit of, right? That's what this whole thing's about. It's what the Roadrunner documentary is about. It's what this podcast is about. It's about being sort of in the front sort of quarter of a crowd for a band that's not quite yet broken, but is about to go. And then the Kabuki drop happens and it fucking kicks off. And there's that energy there. That's what everything's in pursuit of. And I'm there to sort of help reverse engineer it and try and figure out what is it that we can do as either lawyers or as consumers or as fans to try and facilitate those moments. And I think when the press environment is just, this is what Dave Mustaine thinks about backing tracks. This is what Gene Simmons thinks of backing tracks. This is what KK Downing did yesterday. This is what's happening with merch fees. I feel it's my obligation to try and elevate the conversation a little bit and go, right, yeah, great, the merch fees is correct, but we need, we do need the venues. We absolutely do need the venues. But I think there's, in order to elevate the conversation a bit further, I think there needs to be some other dialogue about, well, how can you make touring a viable prospect? Now, I think the answer is somewhere in what we've already discussed in terms of short-form content, embedding it into your day, creating a kind of brand which involves like a story and an inclusive story where everyone can feel part of it. The Metallica is a great example. One thing we didn't mention was Foo Fighters recently, since the death of Taylor Hawkins, there's been this kind of weird subconscious journey that everyone's been on between that happening and the new record coming out. There's, you know, there's those kind of collective experiences. That's a big you gotta, part of it You got to well. tell a story. And if, and here's what I'm realizing, man. I mean, I work with this band called Ice Nine Kills. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but oh my lordy lord, uh, I'm watching it in real time and I'm seeing the the the. Okay, they don't have as many fans as Metallica, right? But oh my gosh, the fans they have are hardcore. They are into it, and they're young and they're engaged. And mm-hmm. why, right? And I'm starting to realize that I'm formulating this. You're the first one I've ever said this to live, but I'm starting to formulate my wife uh laura uh has kind of said this to me and it's got me thinking and really made me you know i guess let me test this out i think that young people grew up with phones in their hand i don't know if you noticed but young people i don't think they like do drugs and drink and have sex the same way that young people did of a different generation i think they're growing up a little differently and their serotonin hits come from uh, from really being into something, really getting into it from like a internet type, viral type of way. These kids love lore. You know what I mean by lore, L-O-R-E. And the more lore there is around something where they can really deep dive in it, whether it's Taylor Swift or, uh, uh, or, or Iron Maiden or, uh, you know, a, ga- a video game mm-hmm. or some sort of, uh, you know, movie mario brothers 
what you know, but the lore. But when they really get a fleshed out world that plays on all platforms, that comes at you, that can be in comic books and books and and movies and film, like they love that shit. And that's why a band that's like a cool rock band that you know, a couple guys in jeans and t shirts playing blues bass riffs, you know, that's hard for those kids today. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. hard. The music could be great, but there's nothing for them to attach onto. There's no message. There's no visual. There's no uh, story. These people want to be told stories is what I'm learning. And I don't quite have this all figured out yet, but there's a distinct difference between any band that feels like it's a part of some sort of larger lore story, you know, thing, three dimensional as opposed to a band that's like the Greta Van Fleets and the Dirty Honeys and the Royal Bliss and, and that stuff. Those are still well-liked. And in fact, they, those bands are are enjoying a, a rock renaissance because they do have amps and guitars and sweat. And, you know, there's that authenticity and that realness. But, you know, a lot of those, the, the next tier of those bands are really missing what is the story that you're telling? And if you're telling a real story, I think you're going to explode in uh, 2024 and beyond. I'm going to try and tie us together because I feel like we're approaching the same landing strip, but from different angles. So oh. we're discussing law and we're discussing stories and we're discussing the kids who like to be embedded in that stuff. And we can just we can you know, talk about why that is. It could be attention spans with phones and there needs to be some sort of like some of the latches them in. When I was rambling, I was talking about how things can be commercialized for a band these days. And in the maximum access world, is there an argument for perhaps some sort of artificial scarcity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think this is where these things collide because people engage with a thing when it is somewhat scarce and the community is somewhat limited. Right. And this is what I think it is. I think it's when you get the maximum amount of engagement out of a thing is when not everyone is totally into it. And you can have to find pockets of people who like the thing. And because those pockets of people come from different backgrounds, different settings and social structures and things, you kind of have to work to communicate with them. But I think the Venn diagram between your way of looking at it and my way of looking at it, Eric, is we want to be around people who give a shit about a thing. The rarer the thing that you give a shit about, the stronger the bond of the community becomes. Therefore, the stronger the engagement becomes with your client <laughs> and the band I like. 100, and the, 100%. And that's I mean, where the Kabuki drop saw, comes in. The yeah. Kabuki drop. If I saw you, I, I went to college, right? And I went to a place where I was a metalhead and I had long hair and jean back patches with uh, you know Slayer patches on the back and uh, you know, uh, bringing my merciful fate vinyl and, and all of a sudden everyone just likes, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and Bob Marley and, and, you know, and, and people are wearing, you know, nice shirts and, and the metal head, you know, I, I cut my hair and kind of try to, because that's what the vibe was, but right. But if I walked into the lunchroom on day one and I saw across the way, a guy with a tray with that shirt on that you have. I know that's my brother right there. That's my brother. And I'm going to sit down and say hello to you. And we're going to be friends for life. Right. And Mm. I don't even know Mm. you, but I know that you're wearing that shirt. And so that's going to help. Right. And so I completely understand what you're saying, because this is about community. And by the way, we all love water. I drink water. Do you? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to be like, Oh my God, you drink water. 
let's be friends. We all drink water, right? That's the extreme <laughs> example. That's the opposite of what you're saying, right? Like, we, you know, you breathe air. I do too, right? Yeah. Okay. So there are things that we all love, but there's no big deal that we all love it because we all love it, right? But you're right. The more – that's a good point. The rarer that that love is. And if I find someone that – you know, if I collected like 18th century coins or something, and I was like obsessed with that. And then one day I like went to college and I saw somebody else who was like obsessed with collecting 18th century coins. I'm sure we'd be friends, right? So mm-hmm. you're right about that. But how do we make that – kabuki drop how do we make that nice. moment where we're all like yes together stoked right um i yeah, I, yeah. I don't know but and how do you monetize that i think you know look i literally literally the day before yesterday sat in barnes noble times square new york city for a book release a hardcover novel release uh from ice night kills that was uh based mm-hmm. on a fictional story that is from their universe that is a story that's told through short form content that's attached to the end of each music video and this is a a fake true crime book written by a author in character that's a character oh my god who yes. dressed up in character with the bow tie and the whole deal as the character and came to new york for the book release and we sold out you know uh very you know hundreds of people to come and listen to this panel i got up on stage to you know, act as my client's lawyer in this fake interview about this fake book. That's a real, actually a real book that we're selling, you know, uh, it's available everywhere that books are sold now. And it's mm-hmm. part of the story and it attaches to the music videos, which attaches to the songs, which is part of the live show. And, mm-hmm. you know, people eat it up with a spoon. And so, yeah, yeah literally, it, you know, fleshing out that world. There's, Another example I'm going to give, just to sort of like partner up with it, there's a there's a, a filmmaker known as Neil Breen. I don't know if you've heard of him. So Neil Neil no. Breen is an auteur of his art, right? Of his, he's a a self made man. He does all of his films on his own. He usually stars in them. He usually writes and directs all of them, and he usually casts the most gorgeous girls in them to play the leading lady. All this thing, and these films are of Tommy Wiseau, the room sort of level quality. It's a lot, it's very fun to watch. Very fun. There's arguments as to whether he is doing this legit, like he knows it's like a DIY fun, bad film project or not, or is he taking himself seriously and he thinks it's great. But the point is we've got this weird thing. He only sells his DVDs from his website through DVDRs, right? So there's your scarcity. Because he comes down on you like a ton of bricks if he finds it on YouTube or a torrent site. So there's the your, there's your scarcity. And because there aren't, no one's reporting on these films. They're not in um, Empire. They're not in. They're not being talked about on E or anything like that. So there's no mainstream coverage of this guy. So when you turn up to a screening of, I can't remember the name of any of his films now, and I feel like I'm doing him an injustice. And you see, there's 250 other people there who bought the DVD-R because it's all a bit of fun, that's where yeah. the kabuki drop happens because everyone... That is, and it's so a cool. gamble. It's a gamble. Put your pie in with your $10 to get the DVD because you don't know who else is going to be there, but you're so enthralled by it and so fascinated <laughs> by it. And it just turns out everyone else was as well. But again, how the question of monetizing it and making it a, perpe- a perpetual uh, asset for your client and for, yeah. for my favorite band... 
that's what I want to help try and reverse engineer and go. Yeah. You know, the, and that scarcity, that scarcity is a big deal. I mean, we've said, we talked about biohazard coming back. We took, I had this experience the last couple of years with Mudvayne, uh, putting right. that band back together and, or, or assisting, facilitating them coming together, being a part of that, seeing that from the inside and seeing the band come back and, you know, looking at guarantees and shows that were bigger and bigger venues than when they left and yeah. having, uh, you know, festival placements that were top net. And, and yeah, when you go away for a while, I recently helped Lacey Sturm come together to do some shows with Flyleaf. So yes. whether it's Biohazard or Flyleaf or, or Mudvayne, or now my buddy Craig LoCicero is now out doing the band Forbidden again, and they're on tour in Europe right now doing <laughs> that. And, you know, these things, we all need new headliners and new brands and, and uh, stuff that people are familiar with. So there's the nostalgia factor, but also that they have had, that have been scarce, that have had that, you know, like Forbidden. I, I don't know if you know Forbidden. Do you know not that, too, Ben? Not too well. I've heard Forbidden. Right. I know okay. there's a Flint connection. So my point is well taken. There's another band that I really like called Violence, right? Yeah. I don't know if you knew Violence, right? Yeah. But those are the types of bands, Forbidden and Violence, where I loved the Violence record, Eternal Nightmare, when I was a mm. kid. I loved Forbidden's uh, Forbidden Evil and Twisted in a Form, but yeah, there's not that many people that know those bands relative to say Metallica or Foo Fighters or something like that, right? So if I see a motherfucker wearing a Forbidden shirt, that's that's really my brother, as opposed to I see a guy wearing a Metallica shirt. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And and you know I think that uh, um, when you bring them back. And you're reintroducing them to a new audience, but at the same time, your fan service, talk about The Last Jedi, right? <laughs> or, or actually, the what was the first one? Um, the the Force episodes. Awakens. Force Awakens. That was basically a new hope over again, right? And you've got, spoiler alert, Han Solo and uh, Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker. And it was just like, it, it, you know... When you when you've got those recalls, the 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 where you can, you know, when Mudvayne's on stage again, to some people they were in tears yeah. at the idea that this meant so much to them. But you also want to expand the audience to bring in young kids and try to grow it and stuff like that too. But the the scarcity is, uh, you're you're absolutely right, and I guess that's maybe what you love about heavy metal, man. Maybe is that it is. It's not for everybody. It's our yeah. outsider music or something. I know? also think there's something about my particular generation. So it's millennials who grew up with social media enough to the point where I think, I, I think this is kind of a hypothesis. I think a lot of my generation have completely dropped it. No social media completely got rid Because we saw the full life cycle. We saw the boomers come in. We saw the kids coming in and we were sandwiched in between what we regarded as sort of like, it doesn't feel like a viable social construct. So I think a lot of us have dropped out. And I think it's... it's. I think you're right. I actually know some people, I don't know how old you are, but I know 34. some people in their 30s. Yeah, that have, yeah. that have checked out. They're not into it. They're not feeling it. And I think that's, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool not to feel it. But I do also think that... Um, you know, it's it's a very powerful tool if you're trying to connect and get a lot of people. Think about you just talked about the cost of touring. Mm. I, I used to think that touring was a way to promote a record, right? Uh, I mean, it, uh, touring was a was a way to capitalize on your music, and that records were a way to promote 
you're touring. Basically, a lot of metal bands put out new albums just so they have an excuse to go tour again, right? Mm. But now I think it's becoming more and more a way to capitalize on it. You don't use touring to break a band. You no. use uh, you you use touring to capitalize on a band that's breaking. It's a way yeah, to yeah. make money, or it should be a way to make money. But going out there and doing those shows is, uh, you know, there's a cost associated with it, and you can't necessarily do it unless you have a fan base. How are you going to build the fan base? There's a chicken and egg problem, right? Yep. How are you going to get those people if you can't? You're not going to go do the stuff and invest the time and spend the money and grind it out. And look, if I traveled around in a van to every club across America for six weeks and left my family at home and lived in a van and lost a ton of money, and sometimes I'm playing in front of first to four in front of 60 people or, you know, like, is that better and more cost effective than mm-hmm. creating interesting and compelling social media content and potentially that playing for millions of people exactly, for yeah. half the price and then going to bed in my uh, in my comfortable uh, quarters, so to speak, and eating food in my kitchen, mm-hmm. you know, which is better? I don't know. So, like, I think disconnecting completely from social media and pretending like it's not a thing, you know, it's probably better for your mental health. It's probably better for your constitution as a human, but it's probably, you know, I don't know. It becomes pretty tough, right? Then how are you going to get people to know what you're doing? I think this, the point I was going to make about millennials dropping off is I think that somewhere in that activity and then the reaction to that activity is going to be the new frontier, I think, right? I think we're going to have like a disenfranchisement with conventional social media. And we'll see a bit with that with TikTok being... um somewhat politically contentious with China. Uh, we have Facebook usually getting a mental health black mark against its name. And then there's obviously Twitter having a big, there's a big personality um, problem around that. So I think people are going to start winding down on it, but it can't go away forever. So there has to be some sort of free market solution. Maybe there's something that comes in that's not quite as damaging. Maybe there's a more balanced, a balanced world of social media where we can still kind of propagate our artists with this kind of embedded activity and engagement. What I think, I think that's just where it's going. That's just, it feels like there's going to be a wind down and then a reemergence. I don't know. I don't know. I just wanted to kind of just put that out there because I feel like that's where, I feel that's where it's gonna we're gonna end up. We're gonna. I end think up the with way this. you engage and what you use social media for and how you use it. I mean, if you live on it and and it's all of your worldview, you know that can be difficult. But man, yeah. I don't know how many really young people you know, but a lot of young people don't go anywhere. Yeah, man, man. they stay inside. They're on their phone. They talk to their friends and hang out with their friends online through Discord chats or through uh, uh you know, like. They, you know, they maybe they don't like social media either, but they're somehow using the connectivity of the internet to engage with people. And look, every dystopian future thing we talked about the metaverse, and there was a big push for that. But there will be a day where it might be a hundred years from now, but where the technology is so awesome that you're going to go to a show in in the metaverse, and you're going to go see. Metallica in 150 years, there will be Metallica concerts. Somebody's going to own that brand and the AI versions of the voices and the name and likeness, facial recognition, deep fake, whatever. And uh, there will be Metallica concerts 
uh, performed in a metaverse in 2257. I'm sure of it. Just mm. like today, mm. there are experiential things that you can do to engage with old blues music uh, from the turn of the century, uh, the, you know, early 1900s or 20s or whatever. Right. So yeah, yeah, I yeah. think that like there will be all of this stuff. I told somebody recently that you should go around to every hair metal band from the 80s Sunset Strip that's like on its last legs and out of money and buy their name and likeness rights and then go, you know, create the in the ultimate hair metal fest in a hundred years and own everything and all the branding and the t shirts and the and the logos and the name and likeness and you know I didn't click on it, but I saw yesterday that there was a um James Hetfield uh, singing uh, Rain and Blood or something like that. Like, it was like a news site that was like, there's a new AI thing of that and that it sounds killer or whatever. And like, you know, there's so much fun to be had through the internet with these. I think we just need to view this stuff not as it lives online or it lives offline. Again, I'll go back to, I think it lives everywhere. I think it's a brand. I think it's, it lives on your t-shirt. It mm. lives in a board game. It's a, it's a book. It's a film. It's a comic book. It's a live show. It's a, a live stream. It's a, you know, social media app, whatever. And I just want to create strong brands that create communities around them, both in person, physical and digital and, uh, you know, and I think monetize in all directions. And don't get caught up on this necessarily a victim mentality of it's all about the merch fees or it's all about mm. the terrible rates that Spotify. I've never seen, you know, you see those people that post about, you know, how uh, uh, Spotify doesn't pay musicians enough. It's usually, you know, like comes from a, a place of like victimization. I don't, I hate to say that. That sounds wrong. Because, I, I know what you mean, you know, right. And and I think that you know you see those guys that always argue that there's no medal at the at the uh, Grammy Awards or there's no you know, there's no medal on Coachella or whatever. And and basically, I would just say focus on creating rad stuff and building fan bases and creating product that people want and uh, getting it out to those people and building those fan bases. And the world will come to you, man, in every mm-hmm. way under the sun. If you get a lot of people that like what you're doing, then you'll be out there and perpetuated in all sorts of different ways. And so I don't think the internet's the enemy. I think it's a tool. I think it can be evil. It definitely can be evil and people can use it in horrible ways, but I think people can use it in great, awesome ways too. And I think that's true for all these things. Hopefully that answers your question. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think we've done everything I wanted to do, which is kind of like trying to assess the the landscape as it is today, especially post pandemic. And our consensus appears to be utilize the tooling around you, try and embed it in a healthy way. I'm saying we've got to elevate the conversation and make sure the dialogue around these things is above a higher standard. So we can push it all forward and pursue those uh, Kabuki drops and those, those moments where we're all in a, in it together. Right. But, Eric, the one thing I need to ask you, which is the most important thing in the world, is I need to know everything about your dealings with Roadrunner, which I believe was in the mid two thousands. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, essentially, I met uh, a wonderful human being who I love, and I don't know how much he comes up in your conversations, but I met a guy named Doug Keo. Do you know oh, Doug? God, oh, fuck right? yeah, man! Yeah, right? dude, and yeah. I met Doug through an organization called A Two I M which is the American Association of Independent Music. What was it? He was a president. And, he wasn't a president. He was on the board, wasn't he, for a while? He was very active in it. Let's, let's yeah. put it that way. And I was 
very active as well and working with labels. And to this day, I'm a, the A2M is a client of mine and, and mm -hmm. I'm very passionate about the independent label community. But at certain events, I met Doug, who, uh, you know, as we would go and be talking about industry wide stuff and, and issues that were important to the, the mm -hmm. independent label community, I would, you know, as we're leaving the conference room or whatever, and I'm wearing a suit and tie or whatever, I'd tap Doug on the shoulder because the roadrunner guy and I'd say, Hey, by the way, I love typo negative and Sepultura and you know, like <laughs> let's be friends, you know, life of uh, agony record or whatever it was. Right. And I would like, you know, even going back to the road racer days, like I, as a fan, you know, I bought King diamond on cassette and you know, the whole deal. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was, uh, uh, just wanting to talk and engage with the music. And I got to know him enough that he brought me to one of the A2M events and said, you should come meet this guy named Ray Garcia, who was their in-house counsel at Roadrunner. I remember coming to the offices and seeing uh, and meeting Ray and Ray having like Motley Crue poster on a wall in his office and like being, he's a Ray, Ray, really became a fast friend and frankly ray is a big super fan of uh, a football team called the raiders which i am too and so we really bonded on that front as well we started going to games together i got to know his family and he got to know my family and to this day i would call ray garcia one of my best friends right mm -hmm. and i met him through roadrunner and we really hit it off and so then he started asking me questions about you know, maybe there's an opportunity to get you involved as an outside counsel on certain things. And they pulled me into a few deals and worked uh, as the lawyer for Roadrunner on the outside counsel level. First, it started with going over some of their uh, form agreements and kind of modernizing and helping to work with some of that stuff. And then, mm -hmm. you know, they would pull me in on a case-by-case -case basis to help deal as outside counsel on certain deals they were trying to do. And then ultimately, when certain transitions happened and things changed, they kind of moved me over. I met Case, of course, and I met Jonas and all of those types of people. And then they uh, started having me do uh, uh, some stuff for their publishing company, which was Robot uh, yeah. Century. Not so. uh, and they and I started doing uh, some stuff and working with them. They had an in-house guy for a while, Alex Plugsma, who is a, a lawyer out there doing these things. But uh, I had. Uh, a great time. And I did, you know, a lot of deals also for the publishing end as well, but really Doug became a good friend and almost a mentor. I really, I know he was the hard ass at, at Runner. He was the guy that approved the budgets and, you know, yeah. some of the bands he had to often tell no and stuff, but man, was he a fun guy. And, uh, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, just talking to him about the business in the industry. He was very encouraging to me very early on. And, mm. you know, Ray on more of a friend tip and Doug on more of a business mentor tip uh, really, you know, helped me. Uh, I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without those guys. So, yeah, you know, it was a lot of fun. I worked on stuff, you know, I think I worked on Theory of a Dead Man. I worked on... Uh, I know I did the, some stuff for Young the Giant when they were doing the alternative stuff. I know I did, uh, I think I did Drew Folk's original publishing deal over there, uh, who's wow. a big producer now, works on the Ice Nine Kill stuff. I did yeah. um, uh, a lot of stuff. But I also remember on the fun side, I started getting invited to their crazy Christmas party, which was a lot of fun. I remember oh, man. going That's to their offices. Question. 
<laughs> any memories from the Christmas? I asked this to Mark the other night. I was like, have you got any memories of the Christmas parties? And he's like, nothing you haven't already heard. So-and-so <laughs> did this to so-and-so's desk and all that. I remember, look, I remember first and foremost, the thing about the Roadrunner office was so nondescript. It was in a place in New York. I, I think it was on Broadway. And uh, one of the things about the great Doug Teal story, I don't know if anybody told you, was for a good time when you looked up Roadrunner Records on Google Maps and you drilled down the photo, there was there was a picture out front of Doug Teal banging a cigarette, right? Like in <laughs> other words, he was in the right out front, like whenever they had snapped that photo, he was because he was always out there smoking a cigarette out front, which was kind of funny. And I <laughs> always thought that was funny. But then uh you would go up like this. Did you go there? Had you been there? Oh fuck no, man! I was, I was, right. I'm, I'm t- I was, I was a, a little twinkle in my dad's eye. These, these days. No, I, I did. You went up, did this, you went up this. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I went over last year in May, and we had dinner with everyone, but we didn't go to any of the offices. It's all been embedded into water now, isn't it? So, so, so you went up this uh, kind of nondescript in this small New York building, older, and it wasn't fancy. And you would go in this kind of beat up uh, elevator, kind of service elevator ish, but it was the real elevator. And you would get there and you get off the elevator, and all of a sudden you were in this room, the lobby that always had a wall with all the record co- album covers. So, whatever was the big records they had at that time. So, it was always a big deal to me to see like which records were they were featuring on the wall there. I thought that was pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And then there was just this giant, you know room with tons of desks and you know the christmas party was happened there it was right there in everybody's office with like wow. you know everybody's stuff and their phones and their chairs and their bays and all that stuff so it, it was a lot of fun uh it was really cool that was a cool christmas party that everybody went to and yeah, yeah, uh you know awesome. i think that i think that what i learned about roadrunner was people did business and they did it well and they did it at the highest of levels and you know, all of those people that worked at Roadrunner Records all went on to, they were all like everywhere throughout the industry. You know, I also saw a guy named Joe Guzik at that Metallica show and I was watching with, um, you know, I'm really, you know, I, I recently watched just to get a flavor for your thing, um, uh, Jamie Roberts and Amy Scaretto. I loved both of them and they're, you know, but, you know, Mike Gitter is a legend. Uh, obviously, uh, Ronnie Connor is the yeah. dude. Right. Monty Connor. But the thing, one of the things that got me into more extreme metal was this old movie called uh, 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 The Ultimate Revenge. And it was Slayer, Exodus and Venom. And it was Slayer on the Hello Waits tour and Exodus okay. on the Bonded by Blood tour. Yep. You know this? And at the beginning, you know what? At the beginning, Monty Connor's in that. Right. He's the guy on the street. There's like a really young Monty Connor, like being interviewed and like, yeah, or maybe just sticking his mug in. He just moshing yeah. in. But the reason, the reason I like this because um, uh, Howie Abrams has been, and uh, with a, a, a collection of other people, have been screening that show at like independent theaters and doing Q and A's about it. Um, oh, it's so cool! That's yeah, what kind but, of really showed me that that extreme side of metal that I yeah, really yeah. love. So the fact that Monty was in that, and you know, I got later, I got to know Ron Berman really well. And Ron's mm. at mascot records. Now yeah. I also uh, can tell you that, like I said, uh, you know, I have, I do lots with Gitter when he mm. was at century media and all that afterwards, I've done lots of stuff. You know, I did the last deal for fear factory with, uh, with Monty. Oh, uh, wow. I did, uh, you know, like, uh, like all of these people are icons in the business. And, 
because Doug was such a historian and such a storyteller and such a, like a, just, you know, I went to see Slipknot with Doug and just from the walk from the car to the pit when we stood and watched the show. And this was, you know, in the 2010s at this point, the stories that he told me on the, you know, that 20 minute walk from the car to the, the, you know, were just unbelievable. And so like I had always said to Doug and I said to Ray, you guys need to make a Roadrunner book or a movie. And I kept telling them both, you need to write the book, Doug, you need to write a book. And they were, you know, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. I don't know. We're not sure, and you know, but I'm. I heard actually, Ray Garcia told me you were doing this, um, maybe a year ago or something like that. And I was, I was pretty intrigued at the whole thing. I hope, I hope it really happens. I hope you have a. a I'll show you this some footage. Someday. I'll show you some yeah. footage. I'll I'll, I'll, cool. I'll, 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 you know, I used to. Now. Yeah, I used to say that there should be something called blank colon the rise and fall of Roadrunner Records. <laughs> this is a big deal, my buddy.